Come in. Uh, hello? Oh, Mr. Peterson, how are you? Uh, good, just uh, here for my checkup. Oh, fantastic. Go ahead and step over there and take off your pants. My what? Y- your pants. It's a, it's a prostate exam. Why would I do that? Oh, it's a e- easy exam, thousands die every year, totally preventable. I just need to stick my finger right up. Yeah, well, well, hey, hey. Whoa, whoa, what, what do you think this was? It, it's, it's not as easy as shopping on joeshrimpshack.com. I mean, there's great shrimp, easy to do, 24 hours a day. Even have a promo code for 15% off. Aquarium Guys promo code at checkout. It's not near that easy. It's just one finger. Whoa! Mr. Peterson, you just need to calm down. I'm just here to make sure that your six-inch chola wood keeps working. Wait a second. This is Roy Peterson, correct? Roy? No, I'm Jim Peterson. Oh, Jim. No, no, Jim. You're uh, C floor B. No, this isn't the right room. Oh, well, that's a relief. Just like ordering from joeshrimpshack.com. Long name and even better cholo wood. All right. Also, don't forget about our favorite people that just had their prostate exam, the Ohio Fish Rescue. Josh and Big Rich. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, Josh and Big Rich need your love and support, not because they got a bad prostate exam, but because they have the world's largest fish rescue that we can find. Go to Ohio Fish Rescue on YouTube, like and subscribe to their channel, and you know, consider giving them a couple bucks. They certainly need it. All right, guys, last thing I swear, we have a giveaway from tenantaquatics.com. Certainly go to the bottom of our website, aquariumguyspodcast.com. You'll see the giveaway link at the bottom. Sign up. They're giving away a free Enigma pack. This is a $60 value. What they do is they take your information of your aquarium and send you a hand-curated package filled with different leaves, sticks, bark, seed pods, all to create a tannin-style ecosystem for for your aquarium. Certainly go again, Aquarium Guys Podcast, bottom of the website, sign up. Thank you, Tannin Aquatics, and let's kick that podcast. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys Podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today, we are super excited to finally get Ed, the pond professor in. Ed, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? I am wonderful. So we were talking with Greg Woodstock. He was so kind to, what was the word that you used, Jimmy? Voluntold? Voluntold? <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, Greg voluntold him that he had to do our podcast. And so Ed so graciously accepted. And we tried just doing this last week and it didn't quite work out. So here we are on a Monday night on a beautiful um, Minnesota day. And Ed's sitting over in the Chicago area having a beer, and so we're ready to get this podcast kicked off. Absolutely. So, Ed, you have an extensive background all the way from, uh, it says on your profile, is it 1991-92 that you've been building ponds? Is that correct? Actually, I started up with Aquascape in 1993. So I have a degree in zoology, which which means I was basically just an outdoor kid growing up outskirts of Chicago, northern Illinois, um, looking for anything water-based. With my degree, I actually specialize in limnology, which is the study of freshwater ecosystem. That's because I was always drawn to the water. That's where all the life happens. That's where all the animals would come. That's where I'd find, you know, fish, amphibians, uh, all types of wildlife. And I was fishing for them. I was snorkeling with them. I would go scuba diving in these local lakes, and I just had a ball with it. And I started working as this environmental chemist, and it really it was not what I had anticipated for kind of my career. So I I started looking around for some other stuff and I got hooked up with Aquascape and ever since I found them in 93, I've loved it because I've been able to design custom water features literally around the world. And I've helped to design a lot of our core products that actually give us the desired water quality that people are looking for. That's fantastic. So 93 you started, you said, but did you do your own ponds before then? 
actually, my first pond was probably back in the, gosh, I'm going to have to go way back. It'd probably be like 1975, you know, when I really started when my first pond in a backyard when I was a little kid. And it was a tiny little thing that had some frogs and that type of stuff in it. Um, and then since then, you know, I've always had aquariums and, you know, I just started layering on all these other pieces. That's fantastic. Well, Ed, what we're going to do is we're going to cover some of our news and updates, and then we'll get down and dirty to our uh, pond conversation. But please join in with us. Uh, again, I'm your host, Rob Zolson. I'm Jim Colby. And I'm Adam Elnishar. We have a new review there, Jimmy. A review? We do. Good, bad, or ugly. One star. <laughs> one star. One star. No, five-star review on Apple. So really? Thank you uh, to the mysterious person that just decided to type a bunch of stuff in their keyboard as a name. <laughs> Thanks to Rob's mom again. Yes, Rob's mom. <laughs> this is the best Korean podcast I ever found. Amazing content. Adam, Jim, and Robbie are amazing hosts. Tons of great info for beginners into even the experienced wholesaler. Industry insights provided by you guys are great. Keep up the good work. He clearly hasn't listened to story time. I was going to say, he hasn't or listened. Or the re-episode. Yeah, exactly. You know... Out of all the episodes, that's the first episode we have not got one I message iota so far from that episode. We just released it last week from this recording. On the re-episode. I'm waiting for feedback, but we have never had a more active Discord since that episode went out. That is true. We talked about stuff that uh, get people talking about things that are happening in our industry, and it was pretty, It was actually pretty fun. It, you enjoyed it. I, I, I just sat here sweating. You know, for you, since yeah, no. that's my diabetic ability. That's correct. But check it out. We even did some custom artwork, turning our normal podcast logo into a dumpster fire. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We do that best. Well, again, thanks for the review, guys. And you know, this week, as far as updates, two quick ones for myself. What's that? Charlie the Catfish, which you so donated to me. Thank yes. you, by the way. That's like, no one wants it, but everyone gets it. Yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, giving that pair of pants back and forth at Christmas time. So if you haven't listened to our podcast before, number one, start from the beginning. These are fun podcasts and are evergreen, so they have topics that'll last quite a while. But go to our first episodes, and we'll talk about Charlie the Catfish, how he lived through thick and thin, rode in a lot of back seats, and also uh, survived for six months in black environment, no uh, no food, and two inches of water. So amazing story about an albino cheddar catfish. But I have him now in your 90-gallon that I purchased from you. He decided to play Free Willy. Free Willy. My cat, right, went to my wife in the morning, woke her up, apparently kept, like, biting at her ankle, trying to drag her over towards the uh, the tank. Like Lassie. L- like, kind of like a Lassie thing, but brought my wife to the fish, only for my wife to scream, wake me up, and put the fish back in the uh, aquarium. This thing has yet to die. It's It's got a death wish, but just can't somehow die. And we've had this fish for a number of years now. Quite a long time. So if you have a rimless tank, don't put catfish in as the moral of the story. And then second life lesson that I learned this week, I decided to clean out my 75-gallon tank and oh, rescape it. What happened? Well, it looks good, doesn't it, Jimmy? It, got, it looks darn good. I'm I have right a massive week. piece of driftwood I bought from a buddy, and it's literally covering the entire length of the 75-gallon aquarium. But I decided just to rip out all the plants and decor and just start over to rescape it. I, I totally forgot I put a Placo cave in this thing. So I lift up the Placo cave. Sure enough, there's a Placo inside. Like, oh, I don't have two in there. There's no way they could be breeding. So I tip it upside down to shake the Placo out, and out come 300 babies pouring all over my tank. Oh, (laughs) shit! There's my roommate for you. (laughs) He's always wanted to be on the radio. He does. Yeah. He does. So, yeah, covered my tank. And dojo loaches went nuts trying to eat these things. So I you know, ran, uh, ran for my wife and uh, roommate. We all grabbed nets and started scooping. I probably got 100, 100 plus out of it. 
So I'm uh, I'm pretty tickled. All regulars in the tank. So if you have a Placo cave, something's inside of it. Treat it as though it's it has babies. Don't make my mistake. Or, or not, don't be as stupid and not know that you have two Plecos in the tank. You didn't even know right? you had two. I mean, what did Mom's, I put that in two years ago? I don't even remember they're in there. How do you not know that when you shut the lights off that they swim around? You don't look at your tank at night? I, I mean, I don't turn on red lights and try to look for octopus <laughs> like you do. There we go. Well, Rob's, Rob's so. tank is so heavily planted, it's so dang hard to even see the fish in there. Uh, there's, there, It's like uh, just a big old clump of plants down there, and so they're so thick you can't see anything. I'm hearing the jealousy in your voice, Jimmy. Th- that is correct. He doesn't even try to breed them, and he's got 300 babies. Shut up. I just, you shut up. ate the damn things. I sp- I've spent hundreds of dollars <laughs> trying to freaking breed plecos, and I suck at it. And mine keep happening on accident, just nonstop. So right. every time I have a batch, I just stare at Jimmy, smirk, and go about my day. Yeah, but I am. I, you in the nuts yet? I, I am taking part credit of this because it is my pleco cave that I gave to Rob to use. This is true. <laughs> I, I completely forgot I had it. So now it's positioned up front, so we can put a light through it to see, make sure there's no babies. So what happened to the babies? They all get eaten? No, no. They're, I have them in a ten gallon tank, and they're growing out the yolks because these things were so small. They're like glass, and they had yolks on them still. Now, as of today, the yolks are finally gone, and they're coloring up. So I haven't lost any yet. Knock on wood. I call Not that bad. a pretty good rescue. So far, so good. You got any more updates, Jimmy? I've got nothing. My nothing? Whole, my life has been nothing but coronavirus, not it. See, we can say that word because we're not on YouTube. Right. Rest in peace, YouTubers. Yes, but I mean... Uh, what, they can't say coronavirus? No, otherwise they get demonetized. If they say the word corona, bam, demonetized. It, really, that's true. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's never, literally a robot right. that literally tries to listen for that word. Yeah, I spent my, my whole entire day out in public, and now my company's required me to wear a face mask. And uh, for those of you who've watched MASH over the years, there's an episode where everybody was wearing face masks because of something, and everybody was going, doctor, 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 hello, doctor, doctor. So that's what we're doing now. <laughs> Everywhere I go, everybody walks in and says, doctor. Well, on that note, let's let's dive right in and start you know, picking on Ed. So, Ed, you're a pond professional. Before we start in the deep dive of ponds, how are people and you know, professionals around the nation trying to prep for this? You know, Are they just telling homeowners to stay inside while we install your pond? Is it everything's moving back to late summer? How's it going for the pond industry? You know, that's a great question. So it's actually kind of been all over the board. So I'll start with us here in Chicago. So the Chicagoland market, we were um, obviously shut down right in the very beginning when everything was kind of brought to light and everybody, everything just started happening. But it was quick. They quickly realized that um, we kind of had an essential service because uh, springtime is hitting and we're all outside. So there's small teams of people. We're not really going into people's homes. We're doing all that work outside. We could send them messages to all of our customers. We can get the information on what they're looking for to have done. And our team can come in and do it. Now, the thing that we kind of had to change was normally we would have um, two guys going in a service vehicle. Uh, Now we have them driving in separate vehicles going to the job. And they're really, they're not really working on top of each other. They're both on the same property, but they both have their roles on the property to get everything done. So it's actually worked um, really well for us. And, and we're super, super busy. And it's because people are at home. So people, uh, you know, we've been waiting all winter long uh, for spring to finally hit. So people want to start getting back outside and enjoying their properties because you're stuck now. So the, we're getting actually inundated right now with calls uh, to get water features up and running, get pumps started, cleaning out filters, you name it, we're, we're doing it. 
with masks, of course, because you got to have those Aquascape branded masks, you know, just to look good. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. I, I want to apologize. See, I picked on Greg when he was here because I really wanted to get in the meat of the conversation. So, you know, I, I gave him a lot of grief for, you know, pretended to be the uh, the odd man out in a lot of pond questions. So I'm going to do the same to you, but uh, just wanted to apologize to Greg. We got a great <laughs> interview out of it, but I had to razz him a bit. Greg got fired Bye. up. Anytime Greg gets fired up, it's it's good entertainment. Oh my gosh, you know it. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, he's got a very short fuse. Once he gets going, that's it. You're not stopping him. Jim, what were some of the questions that uh, that you had saved? Going right back to talking about being in the zone, and Greg kept on telling us that we're in zone. What what is Chicago zone? Because we can't be much off. You know, and describe to our listeners that are new what these zones entail. So the USDA zone system is basically it's going to show you the the minimum and maximum range of your temperatures. Um, so Chicago is a zone five. Uh, Minneapolis, you're probably a zone four. So it's going to go off of the extension of that lowest temperature. Now you go all the way down into central to south Florida, that's a zone nine or zone 10. So that's like a subtropical type of an environment. But Chicago zone five, I'm going to say you're a zone a zone four. Uh, I think the the lowest it goes in the United States might only be a zone three. Um, and if you go all the way up to the Arctic, obviously it's going to be a, a one. But we don't get that bad here in the states. I think you guys are actually zone three. I was going to say we're we're zone three Minnesota. here. Minnesota. We're we're we're, we're a lot three. further up than yeah. Minneapolis. We're, we're closer to Fargo. Yeah. We're 200 miles north of Minneapolis. Okay. Yep. Then you you probably are a zone three. Then I think that might be the lowest number for the United States. So what is hard for us in Minnesota is depth. We always think that uh, just like you would drive on ice, that mm-hmm. it, the ice can go you know two and a half feet thick in extreme situations like International Falls. So the average place in Minnesota that we're at foot and a half. Two feet at absolute worst worst weather season, right? It's nothing. And then you got to imagine that there's only so much space underneath, so we're assuming that oxygen depletes. So any pond that we have in Minnesota that's six feet uh, or less, we automatically assume that there's going to be no fish in it just because there's no oxygen. So if we're trying to imitate that um, and plan around no oxygen, we have to put bubblers in the pond year-round and plan at least a six-foot pond. But what Greg was telling us is that's not, not the case, and that's a massive misconception. Do you have more details on that? So on my personal pond, um, and this was, I'm trying to think of what year it was. It was just a couple of years ago when we had a really, really hard deep freeze, at least for Chicago. So we had multiple days of negative temperatures. It was late January. Uh, we didn't have a ton of snow or anything. I went out into the middle of my pond. I drilled a hole, and I had nine and a half inches of ice. Now, my pond was about three and a half feet deep. So I tested that same thing over at our office and we stay between eight and ten inches of ice here in Chicago so what actually starts to happen is you have water depth obviously but you also have that geothermal heating and cooling of the soil itself so I have ponds that are two feet deep in Edmonton Canada which is which I, I believe is the zone two so there are brutal brutal temperatures up there and I have two foot deep ponds that actually have koi fish that live 365 days a year in those particular ponds. The only thing that we do is we have some sort of a bubbler and or a floating heater just to have that oxygen transfer between the atmosphere and the water itself. 
And that's not just for oxygen, but that's gas transfer, correct? That is gas transfer, correct. Yeah, so we're going to off-gas everything, hydrogen sulfide, methane, you know, anything that's building up inside of that pond. Carbon dioxide is going to go up, and then we're also going to start diffusing some of that oxygen in. Now, the blessing is, you know, because we're dealing with cold water species of fish, uh, they're not carnivores, so they're not actively feeding. They're not actively feeding during the winter months. You know, the large koi fish, when we get really, really clear ice, you could look through the ice and you'll see those large koi. They lay on the bottom and they don't move. Now, the little ones, though, which is really interesting, they're much more active. They're going to be feeding uh, on, the benthic on the benthic strata, you know, underneath. So they're going to be feeding on microorganisms, algae growth, et cetera, that's growing in and on, you know, the gravel surfaces and things like Even that. Even when the water is, you know, technically freezing. Absolutely. It's amazing. You know, but their metabolism is a little bit, di a little bit different. Now, whenever we do have a fish kill uh, during the winter months, it's usually not like an entire pond unless something gets shut down. Like if you lose power, the pond freezes over, uh, you know, you definitely will have a fish kill that just eradicates everything. But typically, you know, if we're going to lose a fish or two out of a, a population of 50 or 100 fish that might be in a backyard pond, it usually is going to be those larger ones that die during the winter months. And it's just, I, I don't know how to explain it other than it's just an old fish. It's kind of lived its lifespan. But those smaller ones are, uh, they don't have the same oxygen requirement. Uh, they're a little bit more resilient, and they stay, they still actively feed during those winter months, and I think that helps them. I uh, had my own pond. It was 800 gallons, 1,000 gallons, something like that. What I did is like, I had this small property in my small hometown, and it was 44-foot wide lot, so it was real close, tight uh, corners. So if I was going to put a pond in, I had to completely upheave one of my gardens. So the garden was next to the driveway and up against my deck. So I essentially cut it out of the square that it was in. So it was cement to cement on all sides. And I just cut the hole out and put shelves in and essentially had some sort of like modern-esque looking pond. And, you know, not knowing this amazing information, because I had it at close to three feet deep, I brought my fish in every year into a warehouse and put them on a trickle system. Now, you said that a lot of times the larger fish are the ones to go. Well, I had three, what, two and a half foot long koi and a bunch of small six inch koi that were donated because I rescue a lot of fish. And the city normally notifies me when they're um, going to flush the lines. They decided to flush the lines, not put it in the paper. And I have my um, wintering system in a warehouse that's cool. It's like 45 degrees on a trickle system. So I don't have to do water changes. All I do is keep checking on them throughout the winter. And sure enough, the city flushed the water Water lines went brown, and the little fish survived, the big fish didn't. It's like they their gills consumed more poison faster than the small ones. So I, I don't know if that is that oxygen thing you're talking about, but it's happened to me these rare circumstances a couple times in the past. Yeah, it it is really interesting. Um, it is the the larger ones, and I don't know if they're just more more susceptible. Those a little bit more fragile. When you start moving them around, they definitely are more prone to getting any type of a, uh, a sickness or an illness. Uh, parasites and things like that seem to go after those larger fish a little bit more quickly. Well, to to play off of this. Some more um let's say an emergency happened and you were in a zone three four or five 
and your bubbler went out, what do you do in an emergency? Of course, buy a new bubbler, but maybe that you will know, take a, a good long time before it'll freeze over. Do you literally go out there, try to chip a hole, and then have your wife run to Petco? Yeah, what you want to try to do, so, so fish... Uh, and I, I know you're familiar with lots of different species of fish, but they have a very sensitive um, sensory structure on them. So they have a lateral line going down the side of the fish, which picks up different vibrations and movements and things like that inside of the water. So water, because of its density, it has a high specific gravity. So which is, you know, sound waves and things like that travel through water differently than air. But uh, when you start chipping away in that ice, it would literally be, be like somebody jackhammering your front door down. So it's like all of a sudden it's going to reverberate. And eventually, if you have a stressed out fish, that's really going to push it over the edge. So what I would recommend doing is get some hot water, something like that, where you could actually melt a hole through the ice um, or come in maybe with a drill or something like that, a cordless drill, which I have done, and you could knock out some holes. But to chip away at it, that's, uh, that could be very, very stressful uh, to any of those inhabitants, which is exactly why you know, you go to the Shedd Aquarium or any of the major aquariums throughout the world, they do not allow you to tap on the glass. It just drives the fish insane. Again, just to explain this to listeners, the hole does not have to be that large. It can be, what, an inch around, half inch around, just as long as the water's escaping and you put a, a few holes across the pond. Yeah, exactly. So th- the only challenge is the, the smaller the diameter of the hole, it's going to want to freeze up a little bit more quickly again. So so that's why it's typically a little bit larger than that, um, but, uh, but it does not need to be much. And it's because the fish's respiration, everything is really shutting down during the wintertime. The dissolved oxygen is going to be higher in colder water. Um, the bacterial activity. So when you look at like a pond ecosystem, there, there, there are a few different things you want to think about. One is your BOD, which is biological oxygen demand. And then the other is COD, which is the chemical oxygen demand. So the BOD of a pond is the entire respiration. So that's the combination of the fish, the microorganisms, the bacterias, every, literally every living thing, which is actually going to be quite a bit. When you have a gravel bed, when you have aquatic plants, when you have sediments and mud in the bottom of the pond, there's things you know, literally living in that stuff, and they all consume oxygen. So during the winter months, thankfully, a lot of those organisms are really slowing down, like, dramatically. So the amount of oxygen being consumed during the winter months is very, very low. And the good thing is the dissolved oxygen usually is high because cold water holds more oxygen than warm water. And this is just one of the properties, one of the incredible properties of water that we have. Now, one of the things that I also want to stress when we start talking about this is if you were to keep algae growth growing inside of a pond, you will have algae growing through. If you you don't have a lot of snow cover over the top of the ice, you're going to get some sunlight getting through that ice mass. And when it does, you will get some sort of algal growth. Now, algae is a photosynthetic plant. You know, it's going to produce oxygen into the pond, um, which can be very beneficial during the winter months. Yeah, up here in the Northland, we've always been taught that we we need to take our fish out. We need to take them indoors. A lot of people just take and put them in a a 55-gallon drum in the garage where it's pretty cold to throw an air stone in there and maybe feed them once a month. And that's, and that's what we've been taught since day one. And so when Greg got on there and told us that we could keep fish in our ponds at, at two and a half feet deep, we were going, oh. It Your head exploded. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> Not in Minnesota. <laughs> but, Come on now. But Greg informed us that he was the pond guy, and he knew what he was talking about. Darn right. 
And so that was that was a lot of fun for us. So a quick question, you know, Rob's and I were talking about we have cattle heaters. It's they're a heater that you can float in the tank or in your pond that keeps the water around it so like cattle can drink and stuff. Is that something that you could use to keep these ponds open? Is that what you're talking about? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, they do a they do a fantastic job. Uh, I have been using them for decades now. The only thing with some of the cattle trough heaters is they might be um, you know a thousand watts. So depending upon your power consumption or something, they do take a lot of power to try to heat the water. So I try to go with some stuff that are more. A little bit more uh, energy efficient, you know, if you can get to something that's maybe a 300 watt or something like that, because like Rob's just said, you know, you don't need a huge hole that's four foot diameter. You just need something that allows for that gas transfer. Well, that's what we were talking about, because that's going to be very expensive because because these things aren't going to turn off the whole goddamn winter up here. Right. and, and what are we so, going to do at 47 below? Just, no, we can't unplug it ever. I know. It's got to run all the time. And so we're looking at, uh, you know, cost efficiency. Is it is it effective enough from a cost standpoint to leave these fish in the pond where you can just bring them inside the house? And that's what we were debating uh, when we were off the air one day after we talked to Greg. Now, one of, one of the other things that you could do, which is really, really cheap and you know easy to do is you can make a mini greenhouse. Um, take a, a uh, you know, an old... Um, uh, take an inner tube or, you know, a, a, a buoy or something like that, something that floats, and you could make like a little plastic dome going over the top of it, and you would be amazed by how much heat is actually created just by sunlight coming through. Now, granted, you have to have sun, so if you're, if it's, you know, the gloomy days of winter where you may not see the sun for, uh, for 30 Month days and a half. more, yeah. it's tough. But it does create a mini, that mini greenhouse actually creates a little bit of a microclimate. It just shifts it over a little bit. And I, I have customers that actually created greenhouses over their entire ponds, and they, they stay free of ice. You know, that's what I was just thinking about. That would be a great idea because the pond I have in front of my house is 300 gallons. I always end up with about two and a half foot of snow on top of it. But if we had a greenhouse on top of that, at least um, the snow that we're getting is usually coming off the roof. It's blown off by the wind. And I was thinking, well, a greenhouse right now sounds like a pretty dang good idea if if, uh, if that works. Well, now you can farm pot outside of your basement, Jimmy. There we go. That's what we need to do. I mean, <laughs> it'll freeze in the winter. See, not not with the greenhouse. We're good. <laughs> well, yeah. See, it's funny how I didn't know that. <laughs> so the other question that we got um, that we went over with uh, Greg is, I always come from a different perspective. I've done trying to do pond research, and I always started with you know the natural uh, pond for learning from a young age the hard way. I didn't have a lot of gurus to go to. I didn't think, uh, hey, there's these great pond experts in Chicago I should have called years ago. And I have tried to see what natural ponds there are. And if you hear natural pond, you're thinking farmer dug a dirt pond. And there's a ton of problems there. It's got a you know dirt bottom. It's impossible to maintain it's just there for recreational purposes for say cattle or something whatever purpose it is so when we so think when the ponds, cattle go water skiing and stuff yeah right so when we think ponds in minnesota i try to you know get my information from experts or what i thought was experts on ponds from places like you know uh, koi clubs and they have a completely different pond than what you guys suggest so these guys they're essentially digging square swimming pools and they are 
they, they have these crazy, insane filtration systems like rotating drum filters. And all they do is stand in their garage looking at these giant filtration systems and everything's in a giant square swimming pool. It just, it kind of hurts my brain trying to think of this. And then I see your guys' ponds and it's completely different. So I went into the details of trying to fight nature versus your guys' method. And if you can just give an overview of the difference there, because that really hurts my brain, just trying to filter it to having a complete natural pond. So what, what does your system start with? So our system, so what we're looking at is more kind of biomimicry techniques. You know, what we're trying to do is set up an ecosystem. So if you set up a natural ecosystem that you have symbiotic relationships between different uh, uh, different substrates, uh, different types of plant material, different types of animals, and if they work symbiotically together, you're not going to have any issues. The, the problem comes in, you know, when you start talking about these strict koi ponds, that's more of a monoculture. So when you start thinking of monoculture, think of a golf of course it's perfect green grass that's highly highly managed versus um, a natural prairie so a natural prairie is you have minimal input you might burn it once a year you have that big thing that you do but you kind of just let it do its thing now you might need in the beginning to do a little bit of maintenance here and there to kind of control some of the stuff Uh, but once it gets up and running it gets easier and easier and easier over time so that's really what we're trying to do so we're setting up a system you could have a variety of different types of organisms living in it you could have koi you could have native fish you could have you could have tropical fish during the summertime whatever you desire it could be frogs turtles amphibians you name it so we're setting up all these different um habitats and homes inside of the system now when you look at a natural pond system obviously you're going to have deep water zones and things like that but the majority of the life actually occurs kind of in a narrow area where the water meets the land that riparian zone is really really biologically diverse there's all types of plants there's all types of animals that require this little area for their survival for habitat for food for shelter etc so what we're trying to do is kind of have that on a small scale we want to set up an ecosystem two two and a half feet deep if we can go deeper great but it's not not as critical as a lot of people may think um we're going to put in a rock and gravel substrate so the rock and gravel is going to uh, protect the rubber liner it's also going to look a little bit more aesthetically pleasing and that's because we're we want to mimic you know what we love and we love going to lakes and rivers that you have beautiful clean clear water um you have Uh, rock, you have gravel, you have sand, you have aquatic vegetation, water lilies, all these things kind of working together. Um, That's kind of the look that we're going after. So we're going to put different types of stone material in there. The other important part of that is when you put in a gravel layer, just like in a fish tank or any type of an aquatic environment, it's going to become home to different types of microorganisms. So there's going to be bacterias and copepods, rotifers, tardigrades, all types of stuff that lives either directly on the gravel uh, or within the interstitial spaces of the gravel itself. And all of those organisms are going to feed off of 
organic waste, um, leaf debris, um, uneaten fish food. So they're going to colonize that that uh, that substrate, and they're going to help do a lot of the work for us. So I'm not overstocking these. Now, again, this is not like an aquaculture system where I'm strictly trying to raise as much biomass fish as possible. I want to have some fish, and I want to enjoy it, but I'm not overstocking it. So I know that's an important part. But the beauty is when you stock it with the right mixture of fish, they're actually going to go in and they are benthic feeders like koi, catfish, plecos, etc. They're going to feed on um, that, uh, that gravel substrate and they're going to be cycling some of those nutrients. So those little organisms that are living in between the gravel will become food for the higher fish species and it just kind of works its way through the entire ecosystem so it's a it's a different philosophy um but it's really really easy and and i know in in today's world people are looking for they want to have fun you know for the people that want to have these incredible filter systems and you know insane koi fish and breeding them and everything hey more power to you i'm i'm not i'm not knocking that at all i think i think it's fantastic because we're all we're all trying to do the same thing we're just going about it a little bit different way on you said two and a half to two feet deep it really doesn't have to be that much more but is that just water depth and then underneath you have what six inches of gravel a foot of gravel what what do you want in that essentially that biological media that that gravel bottom how thick do you want that so Typically, the gravel bed is two to three inches. You know, it's enough just to cover up the rubber membrane and, and protect it from UV radiation. Um, when you start going really thick gravel beds, you will be, you will create anoxic zones. So these anoxic zones are going to become there's not there's no oxygen in them, and that's where hydrogen sulfide and that's where methane gases and stuff will kind of start to will start to kind of happen in those areas. Um, now, not to say I don't want some of that. You just want to be conscious of it. So I'm I'm not as much of a kind of a, I mean, I love aerobic zones where you have lots of oxygen and good flow and everything. But having anaerobic zones is actually an important component of a natural system because just like in nature, there is uh, there are species of uh, bacteria that will actually complete the nitrification cycle by by taking nitrate and putting it directly back into nitrogen gas under anaerobic conditions. So it is kind of a slower process, but it's an anaerobic system and it, it is important. I just want to be conscious of it. I I want to have the majority aerobic and then a small amount of that anaerobic stuff which is usually trapped behind some of the bigger boulders and stuff like that. Now, another area where I'll go with um, thicker gravel beds is if I'm creating a beach or something like that. And this would be for little kids or adults, you know, that want to wade in and out of the pond and they don't want to step over a series of boulders and shelves and things like that. I'll just have a very gentle slope and I'll load it up with six to eight inches of river stone to create a, a nice gentle slope for people to walk into. Now, when I do that, um, an, one of the things that I'll kind of be conscious of is that anaerobic zone, and I will have um, a series of small underwater jets where I take uh, you know, one of my pumps and I'll split off of the pump and I'll steal a little bit of the water and I'll discharge it um, through a series of small pipes that might be buried inside of that gravel just so I have a little bit of additional flow flowing through that gravel bed. You're cheating. 
I am cheating, <laughs> but it, it does great results. You get great results. All right, so I'm going to go to the questions that just come to my head, so forgive me for these. But when you're trying to do that two to three inches of gravel, it's really hard in not ponds. Not sand. Not Remember sand. That. Not sand. Two to three inches of gravel across the pond. It's really hard to keep it even, number one, just if you had a completely flat or bull pond. But you have most of these ponds that have shelves, so how do you address the gravel need for these areas that have shelves? You can't expect all the gravel to stay on that shelf when koi are rummaging around in it. So the koi are are um, amazing at moving material. So they are going to pick up gravel. They're going to move it around, and it's because they're feeding. So this is their this is this is they, it makes them happy. So if you look at the morphology of that fish, so you look at the structure from a biological standpoint, that koi fish was designed as a bottom feeder. The mouth is ventrally located, means it's pointing straight down. It has those little barbels, which are sensory structures on the side of its mouth. It's always searching for food and cracks and crevices and all types of things. It'll pick up gravel, and they could come in and completely move a section of gravel off of a shelf. And then it's up to us as pond managers to periodically put that material back on. Now, they usually work with gravity, obviously, so they're going to take the, the gravel off of a higher shelf, and they're going to knock it down to the lowest level. So usually what happens is those middle shelves might get um, some spots where the koi have moved that gravel. We'll go down during our periodic cleaning, um, which is usually a big main cleaning is only once a year. We'll take some of that additional gravel that was moved to the bottom. We put it back on those middle shelves. Now, an easy thing that I do... Um, to kind of set that gravel depth is when I'm installing my boulders in front of that vertical ledge. So imagine that shelf kind of coming out at a sharp 90 degree edge. I will set my boulder so it's two to three inches above the level of the shelf adjacent to it. So now it creates like a little curb and it sets the right depth for the gravel that I want on the shelf. So if I set my stonework properly, that's gonna set my level, and then I have to just come in with my gravel and I fill it up so it becomes level with that curb, and it kind of holds it all in place. You kind of make it a little tray there on your shelves. Exactly, yep. Gotcha. So the other thing that you said in that uh, last comments was, you don't want to leave the tarp exposed because of UV exposure. Explain that to some of our listeners. So, you, I mean, you can. So the, the problem is when you leave it exposed, you have more of a two-dimensional surface. So you have a smooth rubber membrane, which is going to hold the water in place. It will get a bio-slime on it, but it's, relative, it's flat and smooth, and it becomes, it becomes like greased ice. I mean, you step on that stuff, and you're going for a ride because you, can, you physically cannot walk on it once it gets that bio-slime on there because it's a piece of uh, – it, it's a petroleum product. It's a rubber membrane and you get that stuff growing on there and it's just brutal. So from a safety perspective, I like to cover it up with the rock and gravel because it gives me something better to walk on. Um, the other thing it does, it creates a three-dimensional surface which uh, exponentially increases the surface area 
inside of the pond for microorganism growth, for um, algal growth and things like that. So now we have 360 degrees around every little piece of rock and gravel in there. I mean, it, it's a factor of a thousand times more, which one, you know, when you start talking about aquatic systems, that's, that's the name of the game. So the more surface area you have, the more stable the environment comes. Now, the other thing that becomes important with covering it is heat and um, and also the longevity of the liner. I'll start with the heat one first. So the black rubber liner, if you've ever installed one, it sounds like I know you have. I certainly have. You put a rubber liner out in the sun during summertime, that stuff is going to be 150 degrees. Fry I mean, egg. It gets smoking hot. Like it'll literally burn the skin off of you. I mean, it just attracts that sunlight. So if you have that black rubber lining inside of the pond in summertime, it's actually going to increase the temperature of the pond itself. So warmer water um, is not a bad thing during the winter months, but you don't want it in the summer. So during the summer months, you want to keep that water cooler um, because it holds more dissolved oxygen. Um, it's less stressful on the fish. You have less pH swings, et cetera. So all these different things happening. Now, the other thing is the longevity of the liner. So the liner itself is designed to last um, 20 years in full sunlight. Uh, 20 years is a long time, but as soon as you start covering it up and hiding it from UV radiation, it all of a sudden doubles. So now instead of a 20-year lifespan, you go up to 40 years. And I, and I could talk you know, about this from experience because I have personal ponds in the ground that I've done that are 27 years old that I've gone back and I have ripped them out, not because they failed, but because the customer wants to make a modification the rubber lining is as good as the day we install it. There is no cracking there. It still has all the exact same properties that it had on the day that it was installed. So there's really no degradation at all that's happening. The main thing that destroys them is UV radiation. So there's a couple rumors that I get. And for those that have not had koi or had a pond, um, Skin cancer in koi is a real concern. If you keep your koi in direct sunlight at all times and there's no shade, no tree, no building break, the skin cancer can be a real thing. But there's also a rumor that if you have just a bare bottom uh, rubber liner or just a white sand bottom with not a lot of depth, that you have an increased risk, increased probability of skin cancer. Is that true at all? You know, I, I have not heard an increased risk. Uh, nor have I seen it. So I don't know if I can answer that 100%, but I do know um, I have seen skin cancer issues from fish. And it is because we're keeping them in relatively shallow ponds. So a two to two and a half foot deep pond, it might be within local building codes and regulations, you know, as being a safe um, installation. But if at all possible, I will go deeper if I can, but by keeping that fish growing in that shallow system without any cover, um, that sunlight, it's brutal. And you will have you will have skin issues, and it's always going to be on the dorsal side of the fish. So I have definitely seen issues with it, but I haven't seen an increased um, risk of it in, you know, kind of a, a bare liner or, or in a sand situation. Well, while we're on the subject, just to let beginner listen, listeners know— 
a lot of times I'll get these people that have made small ponds. They'll have small goldfish in them. You know, goldfish, uh, the common goldfish only gets, what, 8, 10 inches. So they'll have small ponds with a few goldfish. And in the peak summer months, they'll randomly lose fish, and they just don't know why. They'll, they'll say, I just did a water change, or you know, they're trying to address it somehow. And I go to their place, complete direct sunlight. It's a foot and a half deep. You know, summer peak algae uh, consumption, direct sunlight. The water heats up and there's no oxygen left in the water. Just this could be overnight. So Correct. having a bunch of you know aeration, having some sort of partial day sun break, even if it's up against a building and half the day it doesn't have sun, some sort of tree close by, even building an awning. For you listeners trying to build a pond, make sure you have some element of shade in it if you're going to have fish or you know, get crafty and have under a bed cover, whether you have extensive lily pads, whether you have a lot of the floating plants, or a shelf that you would build on the inside of the pond. Now, do you guys ever install shelves, and do you advocate using underwater shelving? I do, yeah. I, I, I normally... I love creating shelves and habitat. And again, this goes back to me, you know, growing up on my passion for water, you know, scuba diving and snorkeling. When you're a scuba diver or a snorkeler, when you dive down underwater, you're looking under things for fish. You're looking under rock outcroppings. You're looking under, you know, a, a tree that has fallen or a log, or you're looking within the vegetation. They're prey for things. You know, things want to eat them. So it could be birds from above, could be other bigger fish. So they want to be associated with the structure. They like to have a roof over their head, just like we do. I mean, imagine sitting on a patio in full sunlight all day long. You're, 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 you're going to be miserable. You're going to want to be under an umbrella. You're going to want to have a tree associated, just exactly what you just said. You know, it's the same thing. You know, fish, we have to design these things for the particular species. So I love putting uh, deadfall into a pond. I'll take logs. I'll take uh, driftwood and stumps and stuff like that, and I'll elevate them off of the bottom to kind of create like a, a little cave or a pocket underneath there where the fish could actually escape from potential predators, feel a little bit more comfortable. They stay cooler. They stay out of the sunlight, and they're going to be able to feed on other stuff that is a associated in and around those areas. So fish caves, deadfall, aquatic plants, everything you just just mentioned, I love designing and building those. Now, I've got a quick question for you, Ed. Um, you know, going back to having like lilies and stuff, do you need to take out the lilies come uh, freeze-up time? Or do you actually leave them in to uh, to weather the storm, as they say, for the winter? It it depends on the species. So I, I like to have the majority of plants in my pond, I like to have 70 to 80% of them as perennials that are native to the specific area that I'm working in. So there are water lilies that'll grow in zone one. Uh, well, maybe not zone one. Zone three, definitely. Zone two. <laughs> zone two. So there are definitely water lilies that will grow in shallow, you know, marshy pools and things like that and they do a fantastic job there is a huge amount of aquatic vegetation that can be utilized in and around the perimeter of the pond and they could be frozen solid you know it's like uh you know pickerel rush uh irises um you know cattails all types of reeds there's all types of uh, there's 
the amount of aquatic vegetation is insane. Um, but that stuff can actually be frozen without any issue at all. And I like to keep things as minimal as possible from a maintenance perspective for our customers. So the more I could tell them to leave it in there, the better off they're going to do. And I think the, the more happier that they're going to be with their pond. Now, I do have customers that love the tropical stuff. So you put in a tropical water lily, you know, that, uh, that grows down in Florida or in the Amazon or something like that, um, they are going to bloom like you have never seen blooms before. They're going to be incredible. The, the leaf patterns and everything are just going to be spectacular. But as soon as that water starts to drop down below 50 degrees, uh, they're going to be gone. Um, and those would either have to be moved indoors or you treat them like, you know, petunias or something like that, and you get rid of it and you get a new one in springtime. So to answer this even further, in Minnesota, we have a lot of different aquatic species um, for lily pads. We have generally two that are in Minnesota, and always contact your local DNR before ever harvesting any type of plants, because cattails you can't touch in ditches. There's a lot of different rules and regulations. But I don't think you can touch the lily pads. Uh, if you ask permission from the DNR, you'd be surprised what type of answers you get. So contact your local DNR. Make sure you're ethical before you just start invading places. But there are two main lily pad species um, in there in Minnesota, and they're defined by their color. There's yellow, and that is vivacious. Stay away from the yellow lily pads, although they Correct. look pretty. They grow everywhere, and they will absolutely take over an entire bottom of a, of a pond. Aim for the white lotuses that you'll see in Minnesota. They are literally across the entire state from bottom to top. And much prettier, a lot slower growing, a lot friendlier to the bottom of your pond. Yeah, you, you very seldom see the white ones. But you see the yellow ones everywhere. Right, and, and also be aware of semi-aquatic species. A lot of people don't realize that just their normal gardening plants, like a purple iris, irises love being put in halfway into the water. I've uh, planted yep. a lot of uh, beautiful purple-white irises and excel half-submerged. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you bring up a, that's a, uh, that was a great note on the two different species of, of lilies available. The yellow one is called Nufar, and it is super, super aggressive. Yeah, I highly recommend do not put that in because you will have nothing but that living in your pond. It'll be from it'll be shore to shore and it'll do fantastic, but it's going to be a beast to get it back out of there. So don't even mess with it. The white one is a nymphia species. So that is a true water lily. Um, those will do great, much more slow growing, not as aggressive. Now, um, another good species of plants, uh, plant that works in, in ponds along the perimeter is standard impatience. Um, you know, impatience that people put in their flower beds, you tuck them into little cracks and crevices of, uh, of in between stones right at the water level, and they will explode. Like they will, they look phenomenal. They will totally soften up the edges. They will flower um, like crazy all summer long, and uh, they're super low maintenance. Otherwise known as the common touch me not. Excuse me? Yeah. I, I had to double check this before I before I said that. The, touch me uh, not. The, yeah, touch me not is uh, is a common name for impatience. Rob hasn't been touched in a long time. <laughs> I'm just saying. I didn't want to bring that up, but now that you did, don't fondle your flowers. That's right. right. Dot com. <laughs> don't Google that. Hey, another quick question I got for you, Ed. Um, you know, we're talking about water depths uh, of the stuff, and, and I heard you uh, touch on, you know. Uh, certain areas you can only be so deep because of insurance purposes and stuff. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I, I know that you're not going to have a six-foot pond in your backyard 
uh, inside city zones because of different uh, city laws and stuff. He's calling State Farm right after this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there definitely is uh, certain regulations, and it depends on where you, you live. So um, in the Chicagoland area, um, as soon as you start going more than two feet of depth, um, they actually consider it a swimming pool. So you need to have a six-foot security fence going around the entire uh, backyard property. You need to have self-closing gates. Um, it's treated as a swimming pool, and all liabilities associated with that are transferred over to it, So, which is one of the big reasons why we try to stay at that two-foot level. Now, where I personally live, I live out in the, um, in the far, far suburbs of Chicago, and I'm, all, I'm in farmland, you know, so everything by me is farm properties and I could dig a I could dig a pond that's 30 feet deep and no one's going to care and they would just think it's normal. So definitely check your your local uh, your local uh, areas according to see what their policies are. So a lot of regulations out there uh, within cities but if you're out in the country apparently it's have at it. Yep. <laughs> now, when you start, the, the only thing that does become common is as soon as you start having a recirculating pump, you need electric. So they might be a little bit um, particular on making sure that you have a certified electrician hooking up the electrical supply for your pumping system to make sure that there's a GFCI outlet um, so there's no no risk of, you know, electrocution. You don't, you know, mixing water and electric is, is obviously always dangerous, so you want to make sure that you know what you're doing. And always call Gopher State. I mean, I don't know what it would be in other states. Is there a different name for it? I always just refer to Gopher State. But it's essentially the state's version of looking up underground lines i tried to dig a pond almost killed myself by hitting the main electrical line for the house and that's because you're a dumbass i am i i really am it was it it tastes like metal by the way yeah i was gonna say these guys are professionals they probably do that before they even start digging crazy stuff huh yeah i mean professionals right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we we always do. So we have, as soon as we get a contract with a customer, um, we send out that service where they check for everything. Now, if someone's looking uh, to, to get a hold of you guys in the Chicago area and put in, what is an average price of an average pond? I mean, I know it goes all over the board, but just give people... Yeah, like- I mean, there's California versus Georgia. I mean, there's different economies, but what's an average price for a pond? Yeah, there, there definitely is a uh, there, there's a range, and there's obviously different things associated with that. The raw materials from a pond perspective um, for the main infrastructure, the the liner, the filters, the pumps, and things like that is fairly steady throughout the country. What gets thrown off is going to be your labor rate, and then also the stone that you're going to use, as well as the digging conditions. So, digging a pond in an area like um, uh, way out west if you're out in Colorado or something like that where you might hit bedrock that's literally six inches under the soil, that's going to cost a lot more money to obviously break through solid rock. You might be better off building up instead of digging down. Um, Digging in Chicago, very, very easy. We just have clay, so excavation is super, super easy. Now, on the flip side, the rock in Colorado is going to be really cheap because it's all over the place. The rock in Chicago is actually expensive because we get it from Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri. We're shipping that stuff in. See, let's make this a little bit easier on you. Let's say no rock. Because I'll, I'll say that I found my rock. Say I got a guy that'll get, get me okay. some rock. Let's just go liner and let's just go elements, right? Liner, skimmer, pump, water out, out, output, just the bare necessities here. 
just the bare necessities for a pond kit is going to be about $1,500, and that would be 1,000-gallon pond. Now, that would be your, that's your, your liner, your underlay, your skimmer filter, um, your biological filter, your pump, uh, your piping system, your underwater lights to view in the evening time, um, all of that fun stuff. And if you want to do the labor yourself and you want to dig it, and collect your own rocks, you, you can get it for $1,500. You can have one heck of a, a pond system. There you go, Jimmy. We're doing Christmas in July this year, right? We're doing Christmas in July? Yes. I'll be drunk somewhere on a beach. Excellent. As long as the beach is my pond and you paid for the $1,500 <laughs> of equipment. There's going to be no beach open. That's right. So uh, going on the basic elements again, because you gave us a list of, of what's needed. Now, the thing that you guys got at Opuscape that I think is so fascinating, other than your natural approach, which is very refreshing, because I see that, you know, I've literally been told by these expert koi keepers, and don't get me wrong, these guys are fantastic in the koi market. You know, they have five-digit koi, so they're doing something right, but I think they're doing it the hard way. And they tell me, you know, don't have rocks in the bottom. That's just creating more bacteria. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's what you want. So it's, it's a little backwards for me. So learning this is uh, definitely a curve. So you want two to three inches of gravel. You want, and you guys have this amazing skimmer that's supplied uh, through Aquascape. Uh, tell us more about the skimmer. Greg was going in uh, some details on that and, you know, some of the original designs. So some of the some of the original skimmers and biofilters were basically using garbage cans and cattle troughs. You know, we were using a a plastic container that we would modify. We would take it into our shop. We would cut it. We would modify it. We would add in inserts. We would make watertight connections where we could attach rubber liners directly to them. Um, but we started understanding the flow dynamics, and I think that was the most important part, how the water interacts with these units. And then from there, we started layering on um, other filter pads. We started um, understanding the way the water comes into the biological filter and it swirls around down in the bottom, which allows the sedimentation process to occur. And we don't want the filter media directly on the bottom. We want to have that sedimentation zone, allow the water to spread out, flow evenly through the filter media, the biological media, um, and then we want it to exit back into the pond as a waterfall, which will help increase dissolved oxygen and kind of completes the cycle. But in those early days, I mean, we were doing um, a little bit of everything, and it took us many, many years to actually kind of to fine tune the recipe. So again, think of this as as a recipe for a meal or for a cake or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's like it, it doesn't start out perfect. You know, you're going to screw it up more times than you're actually going to succeed. And we screwed up a lot of ponds in those early days. And But the beauty of it was we learned from our mistakes. And we started fine-tuning the design and understanding the necessary flow systems, the necessary pipe diameters, and all those different pieces and how they interacted with one another to give us a repeatable result. So one of the things that beginner pond goers do is they dig a hole, put a tarp out, and just drop the pump in the center. And that yep. pump only has a small sponge on it, and maybe in the spring that's going to work out for you for at least a, a week. In the summer, you're going to get a lot of algae growth, and that thing's going to clog up daily. And then in the fall, it's going to clog up once an hour because leaves are blowing into that pond consistently, and you don't really want to cover the entire pond with the, with a basket. So the skimmer, just to give you guys, uh, listeners a mental picture, is you guys have that container. It flows into the container in a loose grid basket. 
and catches the leaves, the big debris. Then it goes to a secondary sponge to protect the pump, and then it goes to the normal pump head. So it's it's a genius application for those that are you know been frustrated with this over and over again trying to clean out the pond just putting a pump in the bottom. It's way better. But the big thing that you know changes on this because you're having that natural bed of that two to three inches of gravel, you are putting this up as a skimmer. So you're catching the leaf litter before it falls in most situations, and you're not having to worry about having some sort of complicated floor drain, which I've been told is a must for these ponds. Do you guys not do bottom uh, drains at all anymore because of this? We do not. Um, we don't do bottom drains. Now, I will have water discharge points. So I will have areas where I'm discharging water from a pump into the bottom to help increase flow or to keep uh, solids in suspension. So they could actually be swept towards the skimmer where they could be removed and or managed. I don't do bottom drains for a couple reasons. So, so one of them is when you're drawing water off of the bottom of the pond, the bottom of the pond has the lowest dissolved oxygen. And that's because it's furthest away from the atmosphere. Very, very simple. So the water in contact with the atmosphere has the highest dissolved oxygen. This is super, super easy to do. You check it with a DO meter. Um, you know, water managers do it on a daily basis. So the top water is going to be saturated, and you will see significant decrease the deeper you go down towards the bottom. Um, now, so by sucking that water off of the bottom, you're taking the lowest dissolved oxygen in water. It might be nutrient-rich. Um, you're going to send that low dissolved oxygen water to your biological filter. It's the last place you want to go with it. And that's because a biological filter is an aerobic system. It needs food and it needs oxygen. So you're inhibiting the growth of the bacteria and microorganisms inside of the biological filter because you're not giving them the necessary dissolved oxygen they need to, to flourish. I mean, imagine trying to run. So we, we live right now basically close to sea level. Imagine going up into to Denver and trying to run a marathon, let alone I couldn't do it here. If I went up there, I would be dying. And it's because the oxygen's different. It's the same thing in a pond. Why would we want to feed organisms that need high oxygen a lower amount? Now, the other thing is, if you were to have a rupture, and it happens in a pipe, if you have a leak in your return system going from your filter back into your pond, you're drawing water off of the bottom of the pond, you will drain the entire pond down to nothing and your prize koi fish collection will be sitting high and dry, and it happens every single year. By having a skimmer system, you're taking the highest dissolved oxygen water off of the surface of the pond because the skimmer sucks in water from the top four to six inches. If you were to have a rupture in a pipe, a leak in your stream, your waterfall, anything, the skimmer will only draw the water down four to six inches. Your fish will totally be safe. Um, so there, it's different ways. It's again, it's just a it's a whole different way of thinking about how pond actually functions. The other thing is if you try to mimic nature. So if you're mimicking a natural system, water does not get sucked down into the bottom of a a, a deep pond. There's not a hole in the bottom of a lake in Minnesota. There might be an outflow that goes into a river. That's basically a skimmer. So you have an inflow coming in on one side, the water flows across the surface, and it's going to go out basically at the top. It doesn't go down. 
So again, I'm, I'm trying to think of things the way nature does them, and there's reasons behind it. Um, I shouldn't say there's reasons. Things have adapted according to it. So the fish species that I'm trying to have have adapted to a certain life, and I want to mimic that life for the benefit of that species. You know, you just said, you said, said the word species. What is the craziest thing you've seen somebody keep in their pond? I mean, has it, has it been... You know, sword tails or platies or alligator gar that's 12 feet come on yeah. tell us <laughs> you you name the fish i have seen it so i have gone with everything from um alligators capybaras um i've done tapirs i've done otters i have done um all types of fish from obviously the koi species but uh musky northern pike bass bluegill arapaima the largest fish the largest bony fish, freshwater species on the planet, sturgeon, you know, uh, red-tailed catfish, paku, jamu, um, yeah, shovel-nosed cats, um, all types of discus, uh, yeah, barramundi, you name it. <laughs> I, I think I've done it. And when you said, like, somebody's running discus, where was that at located at? What state? Got to be Florida. Uh, just- Discus are they're in South America, so gotcha. I, that that's going to be out of the country. I've not done discus here in the states. No one's got that type of thick wallet. <laughs> Sixty uh, bucks a fish. Oh, he said arapaima. That's the upgraded version. Well, that's, yeah, that's but just a given. Arowana in a pond would be kind of cool. Uh, I, yes, arowana as well. Yes, I do have arowanas. You got any questions, Adam? No, I'm just listening and learning. Yeah. What? This is what a- he's. He- He's got no questions? No questions. Usually Adam's... We're like 37 episodes in and no questions. <laughs> no questions, finally. <laughs> I'll take it. A, a couple others that we have uh, from listeners is maintenance. Again, Greg tries to advertise, how would you like to have this amazing na- natural lifestyle that he likes to put and yep. only do you know minimal maintenance? And he's trying to explain the, the maintenance. So it's not necessarily day-to-day maintenance that we have questions about. It's seasonal maintenance because, again, spring is about far the easiest. You essentially look at the pond, try to clean debris, and then just get it going, and there's not a lot of leaf matter. You're not mowing your lawn a ton of times. In the fall, what do you have to do to prep for winter? Are you scooping leaves, hiring a pool boy? Are you letting the skimmer do the work? Are you How natural are you keeping this, just leaving the leaves in for the winter? So that's a really good question, and um, there's not a perfect answer for it. So I like removing the majority of leaves. I do like leaving some in there, and that's because um, – so leaf debris is organic matter. So it's a food source for something. So by actually having a food source inside of the pond, it kind of keeps the biology actually happening inside of there. Um, so you're going to get bacterial growth. You're going to get like the shredders and stuff like that. So you're going to get different animals that will actually shred the leaves up, you know, snails and stuff into crayfish. You know, they're going to shred it up into smaller pieces, which actually become food for microorganisms, which become food for your fish. So that's kind of an important cycle. I don't want an abundance of leaves um, because if you get too much and they're too thick, um, it will become anaerobic. They will start to decompose, and they could suck that dissolved oxygen out of the pond. 
And depending upon the species of the tree, they may release tannic acids into the water. So it could change the pH. So now you go from a clear water system to a black water. Um, and that's because it's, you're making tea, basically. So you're letting leaves sit in water. They start to decompose and they lose these tannic acids and tannins into the water. And it creates this black water ecosystem, which is actually kind of a cool ecosystem. I mean, the, the Amazon River Basin or Rio Negro River, I mean, that's a black water river. Uh, there's black water rivers in Minnesota, Wisconsin, you name it. I mean, they're, they're, they're common and around and there's a, it's an important part of a system. So I do like that look. Um, I like a little bit of tannic acid in the water. I think it kind of creates that natural um, appearance. But I do try to remove an abundance of leaves during the fall months. Now, some people will go as far as um, completely putting a net over their entire pond. So instead of a greenhouse, they're just going to put a string up a net over the entire thing. They'll put it up usually, you know, right around Halloween, and then they'll late or early November, and they'll take it down after, uh, after Thanksgiving, after the majority of the leaves have fall, fallen down. Um, your skimmer will become overloaded. So it will start pulling in so much leaf debris that it will just, it will literally become impacted with them. They'll just be jammed inside of the basket. So you're going to constantly be cleaning that skimmer basket out. But it's usually only a, a, a it's a few week period where it's really, really bad. Um, so I, you know, what we try to explain it to all of our customers, we do have services where we can do that, but it's actually very simple. Um, it's almost like having somebody cut your lawn you have to empty the bag periodically. So the, the skimmer is going to do a majority of the work, but you will have to empty that catch bag every once in a while. How do you deal with lawn mowing around the pond? Just let the uh, go in and try to collect it? Or let the skimmer collect it? Typically, around the edge of the pond, it's usually going to be more flowers and stuff like that. So I, I don't actually have a lot of um, turf grass that goes right down to the edge of the pond. And if they do, I, I'll either have them collect the lawn clippings or try to have them blow the lawn clippings away from the water. So if you do get any lawn clippings or anything like that inside of the water after you're doing your work, it's very easy. All you have to do is go back and check your skimmer at the end of the day and the the majority of that material will be captured inside of that catch basket, which is a perfect way to finish the day off because then you can kick back, you could relax, you could open up a beer, feed your fish, relax, and enjoy the rest of the day. I have only a couple more questions from our fans. We got one that they want to know the gallons per hour ratio. In a tank, they want you to do it once an hour, an average aquarium, um, if you have a lot of uh, bio load twice to three times an hour if you want high flow in a pond what are you looking for gallons per hour movement you know um that's a that is a good good question and it's kind of a tricky one because the the smaller the system is the higher the turnover rate you want to have bigger the system the lower the turnover rate per volume and that's because an aquatic ecosystem becomes more stable with a greater volume of water so the water temperature is going to stay more stable, the water chemistry, your pH, uh, everything, dissolved oxygen, everything becomes more stable with that higher volume. So on a typical small backyard pond, and I'm just going to throw out a number, I'm going to say it's 1,000 gallons of water, I'm typically turning that over um, a minimum of one time, and usually more than that, and it's not necessarily for filtration, it's more for aesthetics. 
So our customers, um, one of the big things when I'm designing and selling a water feature is uh, people love the sound of a waterfall. So I'm always trying to design the feature not only to have certain types of aquatic animals, but I'm trying to have a desired sound as well as look from the stream, waterfall, cascades, rapids, whatever you want to call it. And that usually takes more water flow. So what I try to do is I try to split the system in half. I'll have half of the water going through the filter at any given time. So that's giving me the desired water quality. The other pump is what we like to call the party pump. That's what you're gonna have on. That could either be hooked up on a switch, it could be on a timer. That's gonna go on periodically throughout the day or when you flip the switch and it's gonna give you that extra wow factor. That's gonna create that really, that loud waterfall. It's gonna be a big crashing system that has that white water type of an effect. So what you're trying to do is you're saying that you're a audio specialist when it comes to this water, that you're trying to get somewhere between calm and relaxing and stay far away from I have to pee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, calm, there, is a, there is a fine line in there where you could actually create a waterfall that is super annoying that no one's gonna wanna sit next to it, it's gonna be loud, it might not sound right. Um, and you you hit it on the head, we are audio specialists. You create, you have too much treble sound in a waterfall and it's kind of annoying. Too much bass sound, it's a little too soft. But so they kind of balance each other out. You wanna have that right mixture and that comes with experience. That comes with understanding the flow rate, um, how deep the water is, how deep the water the water is flowing over a waterfall, how deep the pool is at the base of the waterfall. Is it shallow? Is it crashing on top of rocks? Is the water spread out? But we like to blend different sounds together to create that desired effect. Sorry, we're gonna ask you after the podcast if you know about the brown note, so. Jimmy's looking at me like, what? The brown note, the mythical <laughs> noise that just makes you crap your pants the moment you hear it. Oh, my ex-wife yelling at me. See, that's the brown note. <laughs> yeah, that one. We haven't talked about her for a long time. Here's my question. Say somebody wanted to do a pond for arowana in southern Minnesota. What would you recommend for that? Move. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know I could um, it would that, probably be okay in the summer. It would. It would be It would be fine during the summer. You're going to, yeah, it's going to be, you could try heating the water. So, I mean, if you really, really want to do it, um, do a greenhouse over it. Now you could really control that water temperature, and you still would probably need supplemental heaters for it. Um, but it, it definitely can be done, um, especially if, you, I mean, if it was in a, a greenhouse or in a conservatory. I mean, there are people that have these rooms and setups where you could easily have that type of a fish. But to do it truly outdoors, um, it's, you're going to have a really narrow window where that fish is going to be happy. And uh, I mean, they're a pretty good predator too. So they're going to they're gonna clean house. They're going to go in and they're going to start eating everything in there. Well, I just wanted them to pick off the birds that are a little flying. I got a <laughs> sparrows, nice. and, and nice. I just figured it'll wipe them out. You're like that new old, a new age old man. Like, quit crapping on my lawn. Yeah, Adam's got four young children, and uh, we'll end up nicknaming uh, one of them Nubs because they'll lose a finger or something. Something. No, no, I won't leave that out there with them. <laughs> just to pick the top three, and I remember the the audience wanted to know. They wanted to know the obvious things not to do and some crazy things not to do. 
So if you could like pick like maybe the top two obvious things not to do that you hear about all the time, and then maybe like one or two of the things that you've heard that are like the craziest stories that have been done to a pond. Sure. So there, I mean, oh, oh my gosh, there, there is so much stuff. So I, so the first thing that pops into my head is people want to place the pond in the far corner of their property that kind of collects water during the springtime. That's a, that's, you're opening yourself up to a lot of headaches. Um, so when people want a pond, they want something that's going to be beautiful. They want to, they want something that's going to have fish and wildlife and they want clean water. You put that thing all the way in the back corner of the property where it's hard to get to. It's far away from the home. You can't see it on a regular basis that periodically floods. Um, it's going to be a water quality nightmare. You're going to have all types of runoff going into it, and you will be fighting it forever, and you will literally probably just completely forget about it. So whenever I'm designing, I try to keep it nice and close to the home where you're going to see it on a regular basis. So designing it and thinking about that pond adjacent to your kitchen window, um, right by your patio, right next to your porch where you're going to spend time, I always try to think about um, the interior space as well as the exterior, because even even if you're down in Florida, you know, where you have good weather year round, you spend a lot of time indoors. So you should always be thinking about designing it and placing it in a place that you can see it no matter uh, no matter what you're doing, if you're indoors and or outdoors. So I think that's one of the, the number one things. Um, some of the other stuff, we kind of talked about already. Um, you know, one is depth. Uh, people are going to say, I, I want this pond six to eight feet deep. You don't need a pond six to eight, eight feet deep to hold your fish. You have an eight foot deep pond. Your koi are benthic feeders. That means they feed on the bottom. They're going to be eight feet deep and you are rarely going to see them. So you're going to want to keep that pond relatively in that shallow, that two to two and a half foot range where you could actually see the fish interacting on a daily basis. Now, um, another big one is people say, I want a massive waterfall. I want a 10 foot high waterfall in my backyard. You do not want a 10 foot high waterfall in your backyard. It will be obnoxious and it will cost a fortune because you're going to have to do stonework 10 foot tall. You're going to need a mountain soil in your backyard to pull it off. You're going to need plants. You're going to need a bigger pump to pump the water up that high. So people have these grandiose ideas, but they have no idea what it's going to take to build it, uh, to maintain it, what it's going to cost or anything. So finding a professional, um, do some of the research online, talk to people that are in the industry and get ideas. No, you're not going to see, we will do 10 foot high waterfalls, but they're going to be on a property that has a natural 10 foot slope in the backyard. And now we're, all we're doing is we're making it blend into, uh, and we're carving out the soil on that existing slope that we had to work with. Um, some of the other things, you know, logistics, you know, when you talk about building, um, what is it going to take to dig it? Uh, what's it going to take to move materials in and out of the property? You know, an average pond is going to have five to 10 tons of stone, well, five to 10 tons. I mean, 10,000 to 20,000 pounds of material, let alone all the stuff that you had to do to dig it. You know, you're removing thousands of pounds of soil, then you're bringing thousands of pounds of rock back in. So kind of understanding the bigger picture of what it actually takes to pull these things off. And, uh, and you don't need it as big as you really think. You could make a huge impact 
in in a small space. It could be cost effective, and it could be a it could be a ton of fun. So starting out on the smaller scale um, is also really important. Um, I know there it can be a little bit more work, but when something goes wrong on a small scale, it's going to be a small problem. Um, you know, it's going to be easily fixable. It's going to be uh, not that expensive to fix it as well. So you could kind of get some, um, you, you, you want to walk before you run type of a thing. So you want to dabble around, you know, people that are, you know, great aquarium keepers, you know, that's a perfect stepping point um, to start getting into a water feature because now you can go from a hundred gallon aquarium, which is huge to a thousand gallon pond, which is 10 times the size. You know, so now all of a sudden you have that basics, you understand what it's going to take from a filtration standpoint and what it takes to um, to keep all these animals. And now you can start expanding it out and it opens you up to a whole new group of animals that you could have fun with. So now for crazy stories, do you have any you know stories of something that happened in a pond or some crazy beyond belief way that a pond was designed? So thinking about other, other animals um, that might feed on fish. I have uh, ponds out in uh, wait. Well, actually, it could probably happen by you up in up in Minnesota. But black bears, you know, you're you're in a rural area. We have a lot of black bears. <laughs> you create a you create an aquatic habitat, and now all of a sudden, you know, animals can come and they could clean a pond out. You know, river otters, black bears, um, you know, uh, mink will will come into a pond. So you, you want to understand what you're building and what you're kind of kind of getting into. So I've actually had customers say that a black bear actually destroyed their fence, got in their backyard. He didn't have koi fish; he had trout. Um, but it cleaned out all the trout out of it. You know, I feel like that's on him if you're going to have trout in there. You're just asking for a bear to do bear things. Right? Um, you know, it, crazy stories from a from a installation standpoint. You know, um, well, I should say I don't know about crazy stories, but dangerous type stuff. You know, we were. Uh, you know, you talked about digging. So I was doing a pond, and I, I don't want to. Uh, I'll say it, it was for uh, for the city of Chicago. It was actually part of the Shedd Aquarium. And, um, you know, we were getting a, uh, a locate service for underground utilities um, because we were digging down eight feet deep for a, a big pumping system. So it was more the pumps had to go that deep. Um, the water was only actually going to be six inches deep, super shallow because it's in a public location. And uh, they came back and said, this entire area is clear. There's, you know, nothing here. And we went down at about six feet deep. I hit three two-inch electrical cables that actually fed the Shedd Aquarium. Um, It fed Grant Park, the Field Museum, and the Adler Planetarium. And thankfully, we did not break them because I think someone may have been seriously hurt. And it would have shut down power to a significant portion of the Chicago lakefront. So, I mean, just like stupid stuff or how, how is that even possible you know how do you how do you miss a thirty thousand volt two inch main line that feeds you know all this critical critical stuff well there's just a big okay sign you know on the ground that says it's good you know they got you know every, a big a smiley face that says okay so that means we could just dig whatever we want and it's just like uh, it's just un- unbelievable stuff i've lost excavators in muck you know, you're going uh, on properties and we're doing some big natural ponds and uh, you go out in springtime and you have really poor soil conditions. I've buried excavators four or five feet deep, 
you know, where we have to bring in bigger excavators to haul them out, you know, which costs thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, you know, a screw up. But it's just because the conditions were bad and, you know, the soil, you know, conditions were, were poor. You know, we, we, we get machines stuck all the time. Um, you know, I mean, just you, you name it, it, it happens on us. <laughs> I figured there was going to be like some statue of Elvis peeing into a fountain, but you know, getting. No, actually, we don't have any weird stuff like that. Uh, you know, no, no, nothing. A lot of our customers, they um, they love just kind of that natural, you know, that natural riverine type system, and they 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 uh, we do a pretty good job, I think, interviewing them of uh, you know how we like to work and show lots of pictures and things like that. So all of our screw-ups are actually by us. You know, we screw all of our own stuff up, but, you know, bad enough. So how long does an average pond take for you guys to put in? You guys are professionals. You know what you're doing. You come in. How long does it take you? From- it's going to be like the Jetsons. It's going to be week in, week out. <laughs> we could – so a, a, a basic 1,000-gallon pond we will do in a day. We will come in with a team of five to six guys – um, and we will excavate it. We'll bring in 20,000 pounds of stone. We'll make a complete berm, a waterfall, set everything up. You will have a functioning water feature um, in 10 hours. And how far do you guys travel from the Chicago area? How far do you travel all over the United States? I have done, I've personally, so my role with Aquascape now, um, I, I, as my pond professor role has kind of evolved over the years. Uh, the longest employee next to Greg, Greg himself. Um, I tackle more specialty type projects and unique things. Um, I have done projects all over the world. Uh, Greg and I were just in Australia a month ago. We did a pond in Australia, um, which is probably the farthest one I've ever done. I've built in Africa, I've built in South America, I've built throughout the United States, Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, I've been to Europe. Uh, I have been pretty well traveled actually in, in projects that I've done. So you have a suitcase and you guys will travel. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if there if there is somebody in need, we're the ones to call. Well, perfect. So go to onquiscape.com and you can also find Ed the uh, pond, uh, pond Professor right on your YouTube page. And I believe that is just labeled Ed the Pond Professor, is it not? It is. You got it. Excellent. You'll find the link in the show notes. Please like and subscribe. He has some crazy, uh, definitely some crazy videos going on there. Even almost lost a toe, I see one of the headlines. We'll have to get that story later. (laughs) Yeah, that was from a fly river turtle. So that was kind of a funky little... He's got oh, all man. 11 toes. Yeah. All 11 toes. <laughs> you know, we've asked you a lot of questions, and, and, and still we have not asked you the most important the most important question, and you knowing as the pond professor and stuff. So if you're on a desert island as a professor, is it Marianne or is it Ginger? That's got to be Marianne. There you go. That's the right answer. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And for the rest of you, that's an old-ass Gilligan's Island joke for people that are confused right now. <laughs> I, I am very confused. Are you? Yeah. Nope, that, that has been an ongoing debate since the beginning of time. Well, Ed, thanks again for coming on, and don't forget aquascape.com. You're training online now you've tra- because you're training quite expensive to get uh, training for being a pond professional and even get certified. That is now being offered online until the end of the month due to the yes. emergency with COVID. I know this is going to be aired after the fact, but you guys are just a fantastic resource. I highly recommend aquascapetraining.com. Is that correct? You got it. 
Wow, I'm, I'm good with my URLs today. Well, thanks again, uh, Ed. And again, if you guys like what you hear on the podcast, number one, support our sponsors. Number two, you can donate directly and support us on our website, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. You can come join, listen to the show live on Discord. We'll have, uh, have you in. That's where we uh, record this. And uh, above all else, you know, go check out what they got at uh, Aquascape and save your $1,500 to dig your own pond. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. Please visit us at AquariumGuysPodcast.com and listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're practically everywhere. We're on Google. I mean, just go to your favorite place, Pocket Casts. Subscribe to make sure it gets push notifications directly to your phone. Otherwise, Jim will be crying in his sleep. Can, can I listen to it in the in my treehouse? In your treehouse, in your fish room, even alone at work. What about at my man cave? Especially your man cave. Yeah. Only if Adam's there. No. With feeder guppies. No. no. They're endless. You midget loving <laughs> sucking motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> Later.